Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. We're coming to you from the 2SER studios in Sydney on Gadigal Country. My name is Marcus Costello. Tonight, the launch of Crinkling News, Australia's first newspaper for kids. The ethics of publishing horrific footage obtained from offshore detainees and a change of leadership at the ABC. As he hands over the reins, how well placed has Mark Scott left the national broadcaster in the digital era? Joining me in the studio, editor of Crinkling News, Saffron Howard. Hello, Saffron. Hello, it's Howden. Oh. But I won't hold it against you. How (laughs) rude of me. Uh, also in the studio from Kindling Kids Radio, Siobhan Hunt. Hello, Siobhan. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And on the line from Adelaide, the nation's preeminent teenage political commentator, Caleb Bond. Hello, Caleb. Good evening and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm glad you could join us. Saffron Print is dying and kids are glued to their screens, but you've just launched a newspaper for kids. Please explain yourself. <laughs> How, um, what a lovely way to put it. Um, yeah, look, I think there's, we're at the beginning of a bit of a backlash, particularly for children, um, against digital. Um, it's coming through in the education system already. There are sort of schools starting to worry, and by educators generally around the world, starting to worry about the impact that all this screen time is having on kids and also um, the impact it's having on their, their education. So... Um, Obviously, you know, if you're connected to the internet, you're connected to social media, it's very distracting. Um, And then there are sort of the long-term concerns about having your kids in front of a screen all the time. So I think we're at the beginning of that that backlash now. But having said that, um, the kids' newspapers around the world um, that exist in the UK and Germany and France and Austria and Norway, they're doing incredibly well and they're all in print. Um, I think... In a way, kids' newspapers can't be compared to your mainstream newspapers for adults. It's kind of, you know, they're a niche publication in a way. And um, they're, they're successful. Kids still want to read in that format, which I think is absolutely fantastic. That's what I want my child to do. So well, what then makes a news story kid-friendly? You talk about it being a niche market. So... Well, the idea of our our newspaper, anyway, with Crinkling News, is to is to tell most of the news that that adults are consuming, but um, to tell it in a child friendly way. So I, I guess it it's making news PG, um, but also um, finding the parts of a news story that are 
are going to most engage children. So um, one of the things I discussed with Siobhan when we, we talked not long ago about um, crinkling was how to cover something like the, you know, the migration crisis in Europe. So rather than sort of um, um, focusing on the, the you know, geopolitical side of it or the, um, the sort of the terror and... Um, you know, the, the gory parts of it, we decided to focus on how um, kids um, miss an incredible amount of school when they're fleeing somewhere like Syria and they're in transit for many years and um, in refugee camps and what does that do to their long-term prospects, let alone the war, you know, and trying to find a new place to live. So there's a kid's an angle in, in most stories, I think, well, all stories. Right, so would it be fair to say that the editorial line then is one where you're trying to world-proof the kid rather than kid-proof the world. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. I think from a personal perspective, I think um, kids are very connected anyway in this world. And and, and if there's a big news story, no matter how um, horrible it is, they're going to find out about it in some way, whether it's in the playground or, you know, in the you know, public transport or, you know, from watching the adult news. Um, and so you may as well give them a publication where you've you've done all the censoring that needs to be done first um, so that they're not going to get nightmares. Um, and, um, and I also think that, you know, you, you don't – one day you turn 18 and it's this, you know, overnight you're suddenly an adult – and then you're expected to know all these things and do all these things, and in Australia you're expected to vote. So um, I think it's better to arm kids with some knowledge of the world um, that, that might be a bit sanitised for them um, so that they don't sort of have it all lumped on them one day <laughs> yeah, <fair laughs> when they right. wake up and they're 18. Siobhan, you make radio for younger kids and their parents. Uh, when do you think kids are ready for content that might offend well, I think for me, the perspective is more, I'm talking to parents of young children and I have spoken to Saffron about um, crinkling and what we like about crinkling in terms of parents is it, it. we have to, if our kids hear a story on the radio, so for example, my children are under four, so my eldest is starting to hear things, we might have the radio on in the background, I don't expose them to news on the telly, but they'll hear stories or they'll see me respond to it. And the funny thing as a parent is you you might think you're really articulate and it's really easy to talk to a four-year-old and explain things, but actually it's incredibly hard. And what a publication like Crinkling does, it actually, even though it's sli- it's pitched slightly older than the children, the parents we're talking to, they have younger kids, but it still gives us a language of entering into these topics that they can see, they're aware that they're happening, but you have to kind of pitch your language at the right place. So... In response to your question about when is it okay to show them offensive material, as a parent, you probably always want to protect them from that. And the thing is, the stories about migration in Europe, there are offensive images that come out of that, such as the little boy on the beach. Now, I wouldn't want any child to see that, no matter what their age, but I would want them to understand the issues that are happening over there so that they understand about the world around them, about the fact that they're really lucky where they live. And so it's all about age-appropriate dissemination of the news. You try to protect them from the most horrific parts because they're children. You know, you don't want them to be exposed to that and be traumatised by it. But sometimes it's the issues that are behind those images and behind those issues that you want them to know. 
And I guess Saffron spoke to a point a moment ago that the inherent nature of kids and young people is curiosity. And so if they don't have content that is made for them, they'll probably go looking for content that might not be age appropriate. Uh, Caleb, when you were younger, you got stuck straight into mainstream journalism. Do you think people your age and younger really care about mainstream news? Oh, well, I think some do. I mean, uh, what you have now, of course, is social media, which empowers young people to be able to go out there and uh, essentially create their own news if they want to. But it can be used as a news aggregator. So uh, you're, you're able to get a much wider range of sources because I can go on Facebook and my friends will, will share a story from some obscure website in France or somewhere. So uh, you, you get a much wider range. But I think for the most part, uh, the mainstream news is the most accessible thing. Uh, and, of course, they'll take an interest in that particularly uh, around my age, because in a couple of years they have to vote. So uh, while they may not be absorbing news to the same extent that I am, I think there is still a certain amount of interest they have in it, because, of course, when you live on this earth and, and, and you inhabit this world, you, you uh, eventually want to see what's going on around you and learn a bit about what's happening. So I think there is and interest in mainstream news, but what I would hope that a, a newspaper like Crinkling would do is to get kids interested in news younger. They want to know about what's going on in the world around them. They become more informed, and really I think that uh, builds well-rounded individuals to go out into society. You said there that social media affords people an opportunity to broaden their news diet. However, studies have shown time and again that it actually does the opposite. It shrinks our world because the filter only shows us content that we're more inclined to read, and that is content that confirms our own political biases. Mm. So I guess one of the interesting things about going back to a print model of journalism is that you are given... The, a medium in which you don't know what will be there. An editor has chosen it for you rather than your friends around you influencing how the algorithm populates your news feed. So I guess I beg to differ a little bit with your interpretation of social media. Yeah, well, that may be true, but I mean, I can choose to uh, read a particular newspaper. I might deem one newspaper to be left-wing or right-wing and choose not to read that or, or think a certain radio station takes a certain particular view or a television station or whatever. I think whatever media we have, we're always, no matter what, looking to confirm our own biases. Uh, not a lot of people read newspapers or, or follow the media to be challenged. Some do, though, but, but what you raise is a valid point that if you give a newspaper specifically for kids that uh, gives them without bias what is going on in the news, it gives them an opportunity to form their own opinions and not necessarily have their uh, predetermined biases uh, you know, just pandered to. You are right there, I think. It does give them the opportunity to think a bit more. Saffron, at the moment you're the only player in the kids' market and we were speaking a moment ago there about the importance of diversity of opinions. Do you want to see other publishers join you in this space? It's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it. I was just basking in the glory of being the only <laughs> publication in this space. Um, look, I think, well, um, it, it's not a newspaper. Behind the News is there from, um, from the ABC, and that is still avidly watched by children um, in schools. Um, I think... I think for, I think there are actually more 
outlets um, in this space, um, not specifically newspapers, but I think they're cropping up and I think people are starting to understand that in this very connected world that it is a good idea to provide kids with platforms that are tailored to them and, and, you know, and media products that are tailored to them. And I think this is why Behind the News has lasted so many years and is still so popular. Um, look, I... I I mean, look, that, that's a really tough question to actually answer. I mean, obviously, I would like us to do a brilliant job and to be read by every one of the 2.3 million children in the age group that we're, we're targeting. <laughs> um, but I, I would like to see, I think, more um, more news and, and, you know, current affairs products generally for children. I think I think that, um, you know, um, it does nothing but help and... and a lot right, of what so Caleb says. A rising says. tide lifts all boats. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think a lot of what Caleb said that you know exposing um, kids to what's what's going on in the world at at a young age means that they they do get to you know their curiosity is is answered is fulfilled and then they also get to you know start making some. Um, getting some ideas of their own about what's going on. Well, what do they think about that? And that that's a wonderful thing for democracy, apart from anything else. You mentioned behind the news there. That's an ABC2 show, so it's funded by the public broadcaster. What's your revenue model with the Crinkling News? So Crinkling News is um, funded by a combination of subscriptions and advertisements. Um, we have a very strict advertising pledge, obviously, because we're... Um, because our audience are children. Um, oh, but Pester Power is, like, so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> they thought the rivers of gold were in classifieds, but little did they know about Pester Power. Um, look, the, as long as you're you're careful, I mean, look, I would love to be able to just produce a newspaper with no advertising. It's, it's impossible to do. Um, and there are... What what is wonderful is that there are um, there are a whole lot of um, organisations out there, cultural institutions, um, galleries, and um, libraries, and you know that kind of thing, who really want to tell kids about the programs that they've got and don't have a way of doing that at the moment. So they're sort of really embracing um, something like Crinkling News, where they get to actually say put an advertisement in the paper and say, hey, we've got kids programs this school holidays, and they don't except going directly through schools, they have no other way of communicating about those programs to kids. So so they're loving it, um, which is great for us. Um, but yeah, that that's our model. Now, your um, staff writers are made up of both kids and grown-ups. You say that all opinion pieces and reviews will be authored by kids, yep. but some of the news pieces will be um, done by adults. What is it that you think needs to be dealt with by an adult? The news. So um, <clears throat> it's really important for us to um, to be able to provide kids with um, with a news product that they can rely on for for factual information um, that can be used as a resource in schools, which is already happening. So um, it has to be written by experienced journalists, and all of our journalists are. Um, and fact-checked and sub-edited so that the language is correct. We're not making grammatical errors and introducing those kind of problems into to a, a child's life. Um, and and the opinion pieces allows kids to have that space to have a voice, to talk about 
you know the things that matter to them and um wow i'm just so impressed at some of the some of the submissions we've had for that so far it's amazing i mean caleb you've been commenting in the daily telegraph for quite some time now mm-hmm. there's there's a 9 year old girl actually over in the states who's um reporting to be a reporter she self publishes the orange street news do you think that a 9 year old who is covering hard news she actually covered a murder in her local community. Do you think this undermines the role and skills of a trained journalist? Well, I mean, maybe she's the, the housey dooger of the news world. I don't know. Uh, but, but, I mean, I suppose it does <laughs> cast doubt over the idea that people go to university and do these journalism degrees and away they come with this piece of paper which they think qualifies them to be a journalist and there's some nine-year-old girl out there trumping them who, who you know, has probably not even uh, finished year five or something yet. Uh, what really people are looking for is not for someone with a a tick next to their name. They want good news. Now, if someone can report that, regardless of their age at nine years old or 75 years old or 25, and regardless of their qualifications, if it's good, people are going to read it. Um, I'm not sure what her reporting is like. I'd like to see it myself. But if she's doing a good job, I mean, all power to her. What's your definition of good news, Caleb? Well, good news would be uh, impartial news, uh, reported properly, gives you the facts, uh, allows you to know what's going on. One would presume it's been written uh, well, you know, good grammar, spelling and so on. Uh, If you can do a bit of that and people are willing to read it, then uh, get on with the job. I'm sure the sub-editors who have been cut left, right and centre applaud your comments. Thank you, Caleb. That's all we've got time for on Topic 1. You're listening to Fourth Estate. We'll be back in just a moment. Yesterday, horrifying video footage emerged from Manus Island. A 23-year-old Iranian refugee named Omid yells in Farsi, this will show you how exhausted we are, then sets himself on fire. The incident coincided with the conditions inspection from the United Nations Refugee Agency. The shaky phone footage was obtained by Fairfax and published on their websites. This is incredibly shocking footage. Um... Should it have been distributed by Fairfax? Siobhan? I think this is a really interesting question because my background before I worked in radio was actually in photography advertising photography and I used to have this debate a lot and my husband's a photographer we've argued about this umpteen times about the responsibility of whoever takes the image and um I feel as a media producer that it's too easy for us to separate ourselves from our responsibilities when it comes to capturing different images and writing different stories. We have a responsibility. Having said that, when you look at something like this, um, someone doesn't just set themselves on fire for publicity. I mean, okay, yes, there's definitely that idea that he's doing this for attention, but there's a reason that that happened. And for Fairfax to distribute the image. It's about the story. It's about the desperation of these refugees in their situation. And I I think it's a hard question because being distributed like that means that anyone could see it and you don't want young children to see it. I personally don't want to see it. Um, but there is, there's a tension between responsibility over that sort of thing and the responsibility to tell the story. So I'm not sure I actually have an answer for you, a, a finite answer for you. Um, but I think there's a, a very important thing to remember 
that as far as publicity stunts go, it's not like he was putting a flag on a bridge. It's interesting you talk about your background in photography and then that how that then informed how you made choices as a journalist. One of the most iconic photographs of the 20th century is the image of a Vietnamese Buddhist monk setting himself on fire in protest of the persecution of Buddhists in South Vietnam back in 1963. Today, we know that some refugees on Manus and Nauru have means of sending Australian journalists photos and videos using their mobile phones. So I guess my question is, should we be asking whether communication with journalists actually affects a person's decision to self-harm? Yeah, look... (laughs) I think it's a tricky one. I think, um, obviously, if you're in a desperate situation, knowing that you can get your message out there um, is going to be very important to you and knowing that you've got the, that, the means of communication to, to get that message out to the wider public. Um, <clears throat> would it, I, would, I would like to think that that, that, that would not... Um, prompt decision to set yourself on fire. I think there are a number of other things at work there and it's certainly, you know, if, if getting that message to the media is, is one of them, it would be one of many, many and probably a, a, um, a smaller, less significant one um, because that's a pretty extreme thing to do just for publicity, you know. Um, I think that... Um, I think we're in a really difficult time with all of these these kind of things. I mean, you know, the, the same sort of questions arose when um, ISIS started beheading people. You know, do we publicise these kind of things? Um, and I think that that back in history, you mentioned 1963 and self-immolation. I mean, th- those images had a huge impact because no one had seen anything like them before. Mm. Now we're bombarded with things. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a horror movie buff or you're, you know, you're, um, you even like your standard action films, um, you, you see all of, you know, it's, you know, it's made up, but you see all of that kind of, you're used to those images in a way. And I think, um, uh, I think the impact of them in a way is probably less now because we're so used to seeing some of these things and because, you know, it's used as a technique by people like ISIS, you know. Um, they know it's going to get out there and then they get their their message out there as well. So it can be used for good, it can be used for evil, it can be used for in-between, you know, it can be used for publicity stunts. So I think it's a, I think it's a really difficult question, but then you look at something like, you know, the boy on the beach and that has a huge impact um, on on people and it changes government policies that, you know, affects the whole um, political climate internationally. I think it's a really hard question. I mean, I know I could answer very simply about what we do at Crinkling, but it's a very specific audience and, of course, we wouldn't, you know, go somewhere with something like that. But Can I say I think the the real question is probably not so much about... Um, whether the person is saying, "Okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to self-harm and send it to a journalist so that I get published," I think the question we have to ask ourselves as journalists is, "Are we doing something to encourage them?" So, are we trying to get through our contacts and say, yeah. "If you send me a picture yeah. of a, your lips sewn up, I will publish it." Hmm. If you're as a journalist trying to encourage that behaviour, then I think it's very questionable. If it comes to you as a cry for help. I think you have to look at motivations again about why we're doing what we're doing, the stories that we're printing and telling and how we're telling them. And um, remember that we are just telling stories. 
there are real people having real experiences that are quite horrific that are trying to express themselves in some way. Um, and it becomes, I think, dubious ethically if you're trying to encourage that for a story or if you're trying to sensationalise that. And that's a question I think we need to ask ourselves as journalists. I, I, I guess... Can I, I add a butt in there? Please do. That was an interesting point Saffron raised before about impact, and I think this is the thing here. Sometimes you need to shock people in order to get a reaction, and it is when photos or videos of people setting themselves on fire and such acts have a difference. But I think you have to weigh up whether every time one of those images comes your way, do you show it? Because the more and more you show that sort of thing, the more and more you desensitise people and the less impact those sorts of images have. So when something really desperate comes along and they go and they, they print a photo like that, uh, eventually it'll have no impact at all. Go, oh, we saw one of those last week. Uh, I think the more and more you do it, the more you devalue it. To a point, because the government has been tightening rules recently around who can disseminate images if they are an employee at, at a detention centre. So I think people in Australia are still very sensitive to what's happening in their name abroad. I think this one in particular has had more impact. Um, I accept what um, Caleb's saying. I think he's right. I think there's a real problem with desensitisation when it comes to images like this. I think in this case, it was extremely shocking because we know a lot about Manus Island and Nauru, but we've never seen anything like this from there. Mm. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello. I'm speaking with Saffron Howden, Siobhan Hunt and Caleb Bond. This Friday is Mark Scott's last day as boss of the ABC. When he began, few people knew who he was. Ten years on, he's overseen the launch of ABC News 24, the iView catch-up service and a digital first newsroom. In departing, Mark Scott has said he's not sure ABC represents the diversity of modern Australia. Caleb, is he right? You said that his job was to solve the diversity problem over his 10 years as MD. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's been there for 10 years and he's just about to walk out and all of a sudden he has this thought, I don't know whether he was just having a shower thought or something, and he goes, oh, you know, it's not diverse enough. Now, he's been running the joint for 10 years. He's been in the Aldermo building. Surely he would have looked at his radio coverage or his television coverage and gone, hmm, I think there might be a problem here sometime within that 10 years. I, I, I think this may be something that he's just thought up all of a sudden and he's touting it around something he never really got around to and probably never will be addressed. Uh, if he really cared, he would have done something about it. Okay. Well, what do you think is the place of a national broadcaster in the 21st century, Caleb? Well, uh, I think it's very different from what it is at the moment. I mean, a, a national broadcaster, the, the great thing about the ABC is that it is there to cater for people who are otherwise not catered for. Now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that should mean regional coverage and assisting those who might not have access to the same media as everyone else. I mean, here in Adelaide, where I am, uh, they came along and, and cut our local uh, television studios. Now, that to me does not scream a national broadcaster that cares about everyone else. They go and centralise it in Sydney. If you really want to be a good national broadcaster, you get out there, you get into the regions, you get into the smaller cities, and you give local content. 
Well, the ABC is about to get its first female managing director, Michelle Guthrie, steps across from the Google next week. Is Michelle's tech experience just what modern media company needs? Look, I think for the ABC, probably, um, I, I think it, it's probably a good idea. A lot of it is going um, digital at the moment, and I think that influence um, is fantastic. I'm a little bit wary of some of the other influences that she might bring with her from Google, um, but the, the digital influence, I think, is a good one. And that's our final words from our panellists tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Saffron. Thank you. Siobhan and Caleb. Thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. That's it for us tonight. My name's Marcus Costello. See you next week.